Good day, my friends. And yes, once again, I'm back at you. Back at you with another Black History Moment with Bo. And before we get started, I want to apologize to all my female listeners. Yes, I realize that this is National Women's Month. And I haven't forgotten about you. And I am going to dedicate the rest of this month to you. Women of all colors and of all nationalities and all over the world, not just Americans. Because although I have never said it before, you are the backbone of this world, not just America, of this world. And you have been mistreated throughout your existence. And for that, I am also sorry. And for that, I also apologize. You are the most educated, the most nurturing beings on this planet. And as far as I am concerned, it is time for you to take over this planet because we have done it the good old boy's way for so long and is failing. Men have been president, have led armies, have been CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, and it's not working. So as far as I am concerned, it's time to make a change. You know, if you think about it, the finest people on this earth has been the female species. She has taken abuse from the beginning, but she always bounces back. And I am almost sure that if females were at the head of the table, there would be no more wars. Because I think females could negotiate with each other a lot better than men. There would be no more pissing contests. But because their gender is the weaker of the sex, they have been abused. They have been bullied. And so today I'm going to slip into darkness and tell you about America's forgotten Mass imprisonment of women. For much of the 20th century in America, a little-known but widespread government program locked people up without trials simply for having a sexually transmitted infection and then forced them to undergo dangerous poisonous treatments, if they were women, that is. In Sacramento, California in 1919, nearly two dozen women were rounded up by the authorities on a single day. Margaret Hennessy was one of them. Apprehended while walking with her sister to the meat market, it was Tuesday, February the 25th, a clear winter morning with a gentle wind and temperatures rising to the 40s or 50s. Hennessy, who lived in Richmond, California, with her husband, H.J., a standard oil foreman, 
had been staying in town recovering from influenza at the home of her sister, known from press reports only as Mrs. M. Bradditch. As the two women walked to the market, they were approached by an officer, Ryan, and other members of Sacramento's Moral Squad, a unit formed that very morning, tasked with cleansing the city of vice and immorality. The police told the two lone women they were under arrest as suspicious characters. Now, Mrs. Hennessy tried to explain who she was and what she was doing in Sacramento. She offered to show the officers identification. She told the officers her six-year-old son was attending school in a local convent, and if they arrested her, someone would have to care for him. The officers, Hennessy later told the press, paid no attention but took my sister and I to the hospital. The moral squad delivered Hennessy and Bradish to the Canary Cottage, as the city's isolation hospital was known. There, a doctor poked and prodded the two women's genitalia, examining them for sexually transmitted infections, STIs. At the hospital, I was forced to submit to an examination just as if I was one of the most degraded women in the world. I want to say I have never been so humiliated in my life, Mrs. Hennessy told the local newspaper. My reputation means something to me, and I am going to defend it. Margaret Hennessy's experience was far from unusual. She had been detained under a program she likely had never heard of, the American Plan. From the 1910s through the 1950s, and in some places into the 1960s and 70s, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, of American women were detained and forcibly examined for STIs. The program was modeled after similar ones in Europe, under which authorities stopped suspicious women arresting testing, and imprisoning them. If a woman tested positive, U.S. officials locked them away in penal institutions with no due process. While many records of the program have since been lost or destroyed, women's forced internment could range from a few days to many months. Inside these institutions, records show the women were often injected with mercury and forced to ingest arsenic-based drugs, the most common treatments for syphilis in the early part of the century. If they misbehaved or if they failed to show proper ladylike deference, these women could be beaten, doused with cold water, thrown into solitary confinement, or even sterilized. Now, you see, the American plan began during World War I as a result of federal push to prevent soldiers and sailors from contacting STIs. In 1917, federal officials were horrified to learn that a huge percentage of men in the military 
some erroneously estimated one in three, were infected with syphilis or gonorrhea. So suddenly, these diseases presented not just a health threat, but a national security threat as well. So officials passed a federal law that outlawed sex work within a five-mile moral zone of every military training camp in the country. When they learned that most infected soldiers and sailors actually contracted their STIs back in their hometowns, they worked to expand this prohibition to cover the entire nation. And when they discovered that most of the women who supposedly infected the men weren't professional prostitutes, they expanded the program even further. So beginning in 1918, federal officials began pushing every state in the nation to pass a model law which enabled officials to forcibly examine any person reasonably suspected of having an STI. And under this statute, those who tested positive for an STI could be held in detention for as long as it took to render him or her non-infectious. On paper, the law was gender neutral. In practice, it almost exclusively focused on regulating women and their bodies. The plan enjoyed complicity, if not outright support, in high places. New York Mayor LaGuardia gave speeches lauding the plan. Then California Governor Earl Warren personally spearheaded its enforcement in his state. In 1918, the Attorney General personally sent a letter to every U.S. attorney in the country, assuring them this law was constitutional. He also sent a letter to every U.S. district judge, urging them not to interfere with its enforcement. During World War II, the American Civil Liberties Union not only failed to oppose the plan, its founder, Roger Baldwin, sent a memorandum encouraging its local branches to cooperate with officials enforcing it. Governors and state legislatures responded to the federal government's model law with enthusiasm. STIs were a hated epidemic, and sex workers often incorrectly blamed for spreading most STIs served as a popular scapegoat. By 1921, every state in the Union, as well as hundreds of municipalities, had one of these statues on their books. Cities and states enforced these laws off and on for the next half century. One such city was Sacramento. Margaret Hennessy and her sister were not the only women arrested that day in 1919. Officer Ryan and the rest of the Morrow squad had had a busy morning. According to city police records, at about 9.25 a.m., they arrested Mrs. M. Sodfried, 
on reasonable suspicion of having an STI. Forty minutes later, they had arrested another woman on the same charge. Then followed identical arrests of women recorded only as Mrs. J.S. Smith, Mrs. Butterworth, and Mrs. Nichols. Hennessy and Bradditch were Ryan's fifth and sixth STI arrest of the morning. It was a sweep. In all, the Moral Squad arrested 22 women on February 25th, all for the crime of suspicion of STIs. But because Margaret Hennessy alone of these women gave a statement to the newspapers, now the STI examinations showed that neither Hennessy nor Bradish had an STI, and officers released them about 8 o'clock p.m. with orders to appear for court the next morning. And at 9.30 a.m., Hennessy stormed into the court ready. She declared to the Sacramento Bee to defend myself, but I would have no chance. She was informed the charges had been dismissed. Nonetheless, the arrest left a mark. I dare not venture on the streets, she told the Bee later that day, for fear I will be arrested again. In fact, of the 22 women arrested for suspicion of STIs, 16 were released later that day, including Hennessy and Bradditch. Six were held overnight, not allowed to speak with or contact anyone. In the end, only one of the 22 women tested positive for STIs. In other words, the B reported, out of 22 suspects subject to an examination, the police were justified in arresting but one woman. Actually, the police were justified in none of these arrests. It is clear to modern observers that the American plan was a stunningly sexist program and one that made no sense from a public health perspective. Nearly every person examined and locked up under these laws was a woman and the vague standard of reasonable suspicion enabled officials to pretty much detain any woman they wanted. Records exist in archives that document women being detained and examined for sitting at a restaurant alone or for changing jobs, for being with a man, for walking down a street in a way a male official found suspicious and often for no reason at all. Many women were also detained if they refused to have sex with police or health officials. In the late 1940s, San Francisco police officers sometimes threatened to have women vaped, which is vaginally examined if they didn't accede to sexual demands. Women of color and immigrant women in particular were targeted and subject to a higher degree of abuse once they were locked up. Enforcement of the American plan ended by the 1970s. Amid the rise of the civil rights movement, the women's lib movement, and the sex workers' rights movement, 
It had lasted in many places for half a century. But today, half a century later, few people have ever heard of it. Even fewer are aware that the American plan laws, the one passed in the late 1910s, enabled officials to examine people merely reasonably suspected of an STI, are still on the books in some form in every state in the nation. Some of these laws have been altered or amended, and some have been absorbed into broader public health statutes, but each state still has the power to examine reasonably suspected people and isolate the infected ones if health officials deem such isolation necessary. That, my friends, is how we allowed the U.S. government to treat our ladies. Was it right? Hell no. But it was legal. But being legal don't make it right. Because if you remember, slavery was legal. Hey friends, that music tells me this once more that time. I have got to get out of here. And I hope your day as well as mine goes well. And before I leave, I got to leave you with a message. People of color must begin to self-educate. There is a difference in knowing what you know and knowing what you were told. Until next time, it's been my honor. <laughs>